Welcome to the Visegrad Insight Podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. It's the 27th of November 2023 and as President of the European Council visits Budapest and Charles Michel is set to meet with Prime Minister of Hungary Viktor Orban, we are only speculating about the future outcome of that meeting and uh, negotiations that are obviously ongoing between the EU and Hungary regarding a bigger package that is to be adopted at the summit of the EU in mid-December. The summit will decide upon opening negotiations with Ukraine on the, on the future accession of Ukraine into the European Union, but also it will decide uh, the release of the additional funds for Ukraine's defense against Russian invasion in this critical moment when we are hearing more and more reports that the ammo stocks are low on the side of Ukraine that bravely not only defends but captures back some of the territory invaded by Russia as of 2022. And Hungary, amid this uh, uh, talks and, and, and progress, is only communicating about Ukrainian failures. It does not want to admit any of the successes that Ukrainian army has had in recapturing the land and having the ability to win this fight. The political position of Viktor Orban makes it nearly a self-fulfilling prophecy should the EU, along the blockade on arms delivery from US, be unable to deliver the necessary equipment and ammunition for the Ukrainian offensive or counter-offensive to, to continue. Given the uncertainties related to the upcoming electoral cycle with the elections across the European Union, including the European parliamentary elections and in the US, uh, most importantly, the election of the next president, uh, where the battle is set between the incumbent Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump most likely to be nominated by the Republican Party as the candidate for the next president of the United States. We have a lot of uncertainties that are about the key issue, at least from the point of view of Visegrad Insight at Respublica Foundation, which is the further support of the West, including uh, the EU and the US, and many other countries across the globe for the victory of Ukraine and the nature of the economic competition primarily, but also coming with a number of caveats related to the security question in the transatlantic relations. This will be the year to decide which way Europe will go. Adding to this, the European Parliament, newly elected European Parliament, will adopt a version of European priorities, the so-called European Union strategic agenda by middle of next year. It is expected, according to the legislative train, that the document will be adopted in June 2024. The document itself highlights the ambitions in terms of economic resilience, uh, economic uh, global competition between Europe as uh, one single economic bloc and the rest, but downplays the questions that are immediately related to the democratic security and the struggle for the resilient and vibrant democracy at home that competes effectively 
with the global autocrats that are emerging elsewhere. Given these uncertainties, Visegrad Insight has released a report, a scenario-based report based on our foresight project, the EU Values Foresight, which you can find on our site and also follow the link at this podcast, and is conducting a number of closed-door and public events across Central Europe. We have also organized them in Brussels and a number of other locations uh, across uh, the V4 countries. And uh, we're bringing in this episode one of these discussions to you that focuses in particular to one particular political developments which will be defining the next year around the moments when the next strategic agenda is going to be set, which is a Hungarian presidency in the EU. Last week in Brussels, I've spoken with Marta Pardavi and Edith Inotai, both experts and very outspoken uh, democracy defenders who are advocating for democracy development in uh, not just uh, Hungary, but across Central Europe and, and in Europe overall. Marta Pardavi is the co-chair of the Hungarian Helsinki Committee and Edith Inotai is a correspondent for ARD and a think tanker, an expert on international relations, trade and security studies at the Center for Euro-Atlantic Integration Institute, CEID, in Budapest. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. I am editor-in-chief of Visegrad Insight and president of Respublika Foundation an author of the scenario-based report, How the EU Democracies Will Survive the Age of Trump. And I invite you to listen to the selection of the comments from the discussion in Budapest last week. First, I ask Edith Inotai to give us an uh, overview of the ambitions of Hungarian presidency in the second part of 2024, my half, and, and uh, bit of a context in in which the presidency will take place. So there is going to be a Hungarian presidency. I, despite all the um, all the speculations that it will be uh, you know there will be a change with other other governments or it will not take over or take place or uh, it will not happen. So the government is busily uh, preparing for that. It's, as you all know, it's a trio presidency, so the program is actually out. Uh, Hungary is going to be the third, the last one of the trio, and very much depends on the other presidencies, uh, what are the, um, what are the, the, the content or the legislation that the other presidencies can accomplish and what will be left over to the Hungarian presidency. Um, it's, I don't think it's going to be a very spectacular presidency for uh, a number of reasons. First of all, the timing is going to take uh, place in a time when uh, the attention will be on the European Parliament's formation and on the Commission. Uh, Hungary will say, or it's going to say, that uh, it will be an honest broker. Um, I don't think that there will be a lot of room for maneuver for the Hungarian presidency. There is not going to be much content. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that uh, there will be countries which try to uh, kind of, um, you know, dim the, uh, the lights of the presidency and try not to be present in the uh, biggest event. Right. And at the same time, all eyes will be focusing on the selection process of the new commission 
and the commissioners coming from uh, the member states, but even more importantly, the election of the next US president with a Hungarian government strongly bidding for just one candidate, uh, Donald Trump. But does it all mean that the Hungarian presidency in the EU will be just a puff with no sense of the policy achievement? They are going to concentrate on the pragmatic uh, aspects. So there will be a couple of points where Hungary can uh, portray itself as a constructive player. And I think uh, some of those points are like, um, you know, focusing on uh, productivity and competitiveness. So economic agenda focusing on uh, defense investments and how to create um, you know, more defense uh, investment in Europe, uh, which is, I think, a valid point uh, because we are lagging behind. And if Europe wants to be a strong actor in global politics, then it has to invest in, uh, in the defense sector. If it's not just want to be a soft uh, actor, but like a harder player. Um, there is a lot of debate on that in many European capitals, whether the societies are willing to foot the bill to put more money into the military. But I think this is a debate where Hungary will definitely uh, play an important role or tries to play an important role. Uh, not um, not uh, uh, independently from the fact that Hungary itself is investing heavily in uh, the defense sector and in the defense industry uh, with Germany and even you know a little bit with Turkey, but you know using this Turkish Hungarian uh, uh, German triangle, uh, which Orban always likes to um, uh, to talk about, and there is going to be a little bit of uh, demography which is part of the migration agenda. There, there will be a lot of debate on that. Obviously, Hungary would like to have um, um, a separate chapter of the next uh, European budget um, dedicated to demography, dedicating to um, supporting families uh, and you know, less dealing with migration. And uh, you know, a big topic which is not leading to anywhere right now is going to be uh, enlargement. Uh, so this is um, something that you mm -hmm. know Hungary can easily play lip service to without risking too much, and uh, obviously you know portraying itself as uh, as a champion for enlargement, especially for the Western Balkans, because Ukraine is a whole different matter. That was Edit Inotai, and then I asked Marta Pardavi from the Helsinki Committee whether she believes that given the European focus on security, the, uh, the topic of security will trump all the issues related to democracy. And can there be a democratic security discussion during a Hungarian presidency, uh, a discussion in the truly European context? Yeah, thank you. Well, coming from a Helsinki committee, which, which is... Uh takes its name from the Helsinki process, right, the, which is now the OSCE, basically the only organization that has both democracy, democratic institutions, and security in its, in its mission. I can't say that it would be, you know, separate. It is actually not only two sides of the same coin, but they are very closely tied together um, in, in, in a previous discussion of Half an hour ago, we were talking about Ukraine 
And I sincerely thought that um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it would bring a revival to democracy, the notion that we must reinforce democracy within the EU and also to put this, you know, something as, 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 as a source of real pride, uh, a source of our European identity on our shield, on our armor, among the other things. So that, you know, this would be an attractive, more attractive offer than anything that is arbitrary, democratic decline, because it was such a stark difference. I thought, you know, arbitrariness, um, the lack of accountability, corruption, not only in the financial sense, but in the political sense, this is what it leads to. And we as Europeans can do better. And we have to recognize that we must do better, but there is still a way to go. And sadly, I don't think this was, this, this was just my sort of wish, but I don't see that reflected as, as strongly in the current policies, exactly as you mentioned. But at the same time, we can also think of democracy as something much more mundane and, you know, less declaratory. We don't need to always put it in, in terms of slogans because those are very often empty slogans and very often democracies of process. And so, the question for me partly is whether this Hungarian EU presidency will be a process and for who. So is it going to be overshadowed by the institutions being established, something where the Hungarian government will really try to play an honest broker, basically evade um, the debates or the or the or the the, the yeah, the arenas of conflict that it very often uses in its narrative? Or will it be a process for Hungarians also to get a little bit more engaged with the European Union and have a better understanding of, of the European Union? Right before that, we're going to have the EP elections and the campaign. We already see what kind of campaign we're looking at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, more of the same, much more of the what we got to, used to, the the very divisive, very polarizing, very superficial narratives. But in fact, this, my best hope would for the Hungarian EU presidency for its success would be that Hungarian society also has an opportunity to show itself, to showcase itself and, and to maybe not outshine the, the, the government, obviously. Bless you. Bless you. That, that's, that's not possible, but also to show itself. Because it's such a, very often it's only about what the Hungarian government or senior representatives are saying or doing. And it seems like the country is wholly united behind them. But in a democratic society, you have diversity. We do have diversity of views. We need to show that. So I'm hoping that civil society and many other actors would also do things and use this as an opportunity to showcase what we have and think and what we can offer. And so, yes, it is an opportunity to attract people who otherwise never come to Budapest anymore because it's not the kind of place that you go to, because it's not the kind of place where you shake hands with people who are saying that the European Union is, in just the last few days, narratives are very clear, descending into disaster, chaos, down the hill, um, overtaken. It's almost as if it's we're sitting in a pile of rubble. Um, no, so it will be an, an opportunity and basically a, 
yeah, a mandatory mission for many senior European policymakers and decision makers from various EU member states to come to Hungary. They should also take a, the opportunity to see what else is there to, to meet um, society and actors of society. And I think this, this could be something which is, well, something that we usually don't do. So very often, I really like the, the idea of this, of, of this exercise that you're doing, because most often we look at national scenarios, national contexts. We don't think of Europe as Europeans. It's very hard also to think of it because it's so complex and far away. But when, when there's this, um, this big event going on, and the Hungarian government will for sure put in a lot of effort to showcase Hungary as a as an attractive place, then we should also try to to use this as an opportunity. But I think there's a lot of a lot of pitfalls when we look at beyond the the PR, right? So when we look at the substance and Edith mentioned some of the priorities of the Hungarian government and these are of course are being elaborated and it's very good that the, the EU delegation is actually organizing or hosting a series of debates with civil society about the Hungarian EU presidency's mm. priorities. There was one to introduce the presidency priorities. There will be one now um, just on Friday, focusing on enlargement, something we should talk about. This is not organized by the Hungarian government, but it's great that the Hungarian government in cooperation with the EU mm. uh, Commission's delegation is doing this. But if we look at the topics of enlargement, demographic challenges, as, as it was put, stopping illegal migration, and also I'd say cohesion policy. All of these can be pretty divisive and you can look at them, all these topics from a, a democracy, rule of law, fundamental rights, core EU values angle. So if we look at it this way, it can be a very rocky road because all of these topics have already um, developed positions or they're developing. And if you just, you know, read Hungarian news on a regular basis, I think everybody will be able to recite the top line messages of the Hungarian government on all these topics. So it is super politicized. It is very divisive. The way it is framed is very, very loud and clear and polarizing. So I wonder how can the Hungarian government in the presidency steer away from the polarizing context it has created and funded and fuels. So it will not be so easy, I think, mm. to, 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 you know, glide through easily on these topics, unless all the, all these topics will be somehow ticked off by the other two members <laughs> of the trio, or that there would be some arrangement where the Hungarian presidency tackles some of these topics less and others more, something that was suggested, right, as a way of perhaps blunting the, the edge of this presidency. Uh, thank you, Marta. And both on the topic of style or communications and, and, and substance on, on the remarks on the, on the presidency. Now, uh, since will be ha having a follow-up presidency in, in Poland as a beginning of a trilogue. Um, let me just emphasize that currently the previous, the outgoing government has not even started preparing. Uh, they basically, and it's an official uh, 
communication, except three priorities that the president and the prime minister already highlighted, energy uh, security, enlargement, uh, indeed, and um, kill me, I forgot the third one. But not that it is very important. The, the priorities are not uh, set, set in stone and the program will be decided, uh, and that's by unnamed sources at this <laughs> discussion because it's public within the government who basically say that the priorities will be set and set in stone only at the very beginning of the presidency, namely because after EP elections, there will be commissioner selection process mm. and the commission, this will take so much time and effort that whatever the process in terms of parliament will be there, it will not really matter. So I think the communication side of it will be the essence and, and thanks for, for mm. highlighting this. I didn't even think of that, how important it can be uh, for um, for the EU to actually sediment in 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 Hungary as uh, as some something that is not a devil. But I have to share you the Polish experience. We had a devil in Poland, specifically in public TV. This devil name is uh, Donald Tusk, and uh, he, as a devil himself, has been twenty four seven in all channels of broadcast in the public TV and and radio until he came out uh, to the villages and towns of local people and actually met them. And once they started to meet with him, they, they started to get interested because they never even thought it's a real person and it can speak. Um, so the, the idea that, uh, that you utilize the momentum of actually people coming and not to Budapest, I guess, alone, but actually where it matters and the communication other than personal is, is not in a, in a sort of town hall meeting, that would be a fantastic idea. I know that this is too much to demand from European policymakers and, and on all sides, and that there will be hurdles, of course, but, but not to mention Hungarian language and other languages of all other member states. But <laughs> somehow the, the idea is really much beyond entertainment. I think it's, it's the, the essence bread and butter for which, what I believe is, is so important close to your heart, which is cohesion, not only social cohesion in Hungary, but also European cohesion to, to be able to actually talk without so much prejudice. There's always some prejudice, I guess, but, 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 but I like it very much. I wonder how, how do you see this, this possibility that, that, that presidency instead of, because right now, what's the temperature in the European Union? Council, the, the EU Council, the European Council, sorry. See, this is a difficult uh, animal. Um, so in the European Council, the discussion has been in the European Parliament to actually deprive Hung Hungary of, of the presidency, right? The, 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 there was a polarizing language, in fact, in the EU on, on Hungary, very much like internal Hungarian debate, you could say. Does it have any effect in Hungary, this, this kind of uh, saber-rattling in, in Brussels? I think yes and no. I think most of the Hungarian um, citizens are very little aware of what's happening in Europe and in the world. And as, as a former foreign policy journalist, and I think Gabor can, uh, can just um, um, uh, also repeat that, that people just don't know what's happening in Europe. They don't read foreign newspapers. The only channel they receive foreign news is basically 
the public media and very little from the critical media. But since the critical media uh, doesn't have uh, the means to have correspondence all over the world or even in Europe, uh, it's really very little information that the Hungarians receive uh, about the EU and about uh, Western Europe. So all kinds of really, you know, terrible notions and ideas are circulating about, you know, Germany terminating itself and the, you know, the West is uh, kind of turning into a migrant ghetto and stuff like that. And when people end up traveling abroad, they are surprised that, you know, the word is not as it is portrayed in most Hungarian media. So in a way, all the, uh, the, this, this saber rattling and this polarization in Brussels and in the European Parliament helps the Hungarian government, uh, to, uh, to portray itself as kind of a victim uh in europe so i i usually try to warn everybody uh from you know exaggerating hungary's importance hungary is not that important in europe it's a small country and especially after the elections in poland it's pretty much isolated yeah you can have fito and you can have slovakia uh, but at the moment it's not really relevant so just please do not uh do not um, deal with Orban as if he was like kind of a big person and and a re- very relevant politician in Europe. Because with this, you are helping his agenda because he doesn't really have any relevant opposition in Hungary. So all his efforts are directed towards the European uh, citizens and the European politicians because he wants to play big ball there, big games. So I think, you know, if you ignore him, that's really the worst that can happen to him. And maybe that would be the best way to deal with him. It will be hard during the, it will be hard, it will be hard during the EU presidency, during which also Donald Trump will be racing. I'm betting on my money against this title that Trump will not become the next president of the US, if I have any money to bet. (laughs) But, um, but still, this is very much the topic of the discussion and the policy debate and will bring some relevance, actually spotlight to Mr. Orban, who is the hardline supporter from the very beginning of... Absolutely. I mean, and, and he is betting on, on Trump. This is clear. And no matter what happens at the US elections, he will emerge as a winner. I mean, Orban, because if Trump wins, evidently he's going to be kind of an ally and he will say, okay, I told you, I, uh, I am in the winning team. And if Biden wins, then he will say, okay, so we have problems with the US and we have problems with the world just because we were, uh, we were, uh, supporting Trump. So you are kind of, you know, ugly and, and bad with us just because we were in the other team. So either way, he will, he will be the winner or he will portray himself as a winner. Um, I am intimidated by the level mm-hmm. of success of this man, but uh, I wanted to speak about Europe overall. Since you brought it up, that there will be focus and there will be engagement, how to utilize this engagement and the focal point on Hungary to bring forward and elevate in the European Union the topics on the democratic security? Because obviously this will be a topic of discussion at least during this half a year, if, if not longer. What, where would you see, you know, the potential of many European 
policymakers, advisors, leaders coming and and bringing the focus. What 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 potential do you think this can bring from civil society perspective? It it leads back to to um, the idea that you were showcasing. So ignore Mr. Orban, you say, but I'd say not ignore Hungarian society. And this is this is the the difficulty. I don't know if one can ignore um, the policies because because what's happening in Hungary ultimately, of course, impacts Hungarians the most. It's our problem, but in a way, it's a European problem. Not only through the interdependence and the policy and the decision making cycle, but also because it is in a way a globalized world, right? And many of the narratives that we see here um, that pain us, that that impact us, that you know basically also are like vampires on good energy. <coughs> they also um, resurface elsewhere and and it's an impex business, right? You import these and then you export them with a spin. And so we cannot leave it um, without um, a response because then it can fester as a wound. Um, so how can we showcase de- the, the democratic security. Well, one thing is, I think, and these, um, the, the graphs that you showed also, the people think of the, when they were asked as a trade-off between your security and your rights. But in a society that is healthy and democratic, you also think of your rights as a form of your security. Germany was displayed yeah. in, in much more, yes. And that's because people trust institutions, or at least, more or less trust because you don't have and I think any any in any EU member state you don't have full public trust it varies from institution to institutions but some member states are better off and if you can trust your that's, institutions that's on trust yeah. actually mm-hmm. so hungarians sadly perform very very badly um in in government there's most of these um public confidence indexes also look at other sectors. Usually, you know, firefighters are the are the number one who come out as, as the top. But also they usually ask about other types of media or non-government organizations. So public trust is is a very valuable asset when it comes to democracy. It is a real strong currency. And and Hungary is not doing so well here. But in places where it's higher, people feel safe in a way, in your rights, in your processes, as a business owner, as a citizen, as a parent, uh, as a patient. So this is the kind of trust that I think needs to be built. And if we can talk about this kind of trust and where do, can you, how can you grow this public trust, what are the ways to do it? How can you make sure that it's not eroded or taken away by discrediting propaganda, um, media, smear campaigns and the like? Then I think it would be an interesting conversation. So one thing that I hope that civil society organizations in Hungary will do is talk about the state of civil society, how people engage with it, what it brings and what are the threats. And this is a pan-European issue. Um, with various shades across the EU member states. The other thing that I think is would be important to talk about is civic education. It's not a 
hardcore EU policy. But somehow when you talk to people about democracy, it always ends up being a discussion about civic education. And there is member states which have good practice, although with declining budgets, but there are still good practices out there. So something about this, something long term where you can't not brand it as, or I would hope it cannot be branded as something which is, I don't know, sinister um, opposition forces or or foreign interference, but rather is a something that is a value to everybody in society. So something that leads to conversations around this, I think would be very important. And this is a long-term project. I agree with some people, Hungary is worse off than any other EU member state when it comes to democracy. And so we cannot use the methods and the approaches um, automatically but there are still a lot of things to learn and also that spill over positive impacts of other EU policies where we can gain. So I would hope that this, in this sense, would, would allow conversations to, to, because it's happening in Hungary, to refocus on this democratic um, pillars of our societies and the, the security, not necessarily in the military sense, obviously, but there is, also, when it comes to the military, and we never talk about this in Europe, but wouldn't it be nice if there was a discussion between civilians and the military too, not a divide? We never talk to people in uniform, right? We have no contact to people in uniform. Most of us probably have never talked to anybody who's serving in the army in a professional manner. And their purpose in a democratic society is actually to safeguard that democracy. Yeah. So, so, and to, to bring that back, that's also something, but maybe that's just, you know, not so today's conversation, but maybe down the line. But I think it would be important because when we talk about security, safety, democracy, and the fundamental pillars, we should not see that as outside of this. Yeah. Our discussion in Budapest then followed into Q&A session with the public. One of the most fascinating questions on the subject was pointing to the fact that EU may not be well prepared yet for the type of the up-to-date security measures that entangle both the hardware, military, technological, high-tech uh, equipment that is uh, used to deter the enemy and, if necessary, to combat an aggression, but specifically that focuses on the preparedness of the societies and democracies in uh, a potential uh, conflict that is, uh, truly speaking, an ongoing conflict of values, a, a conflict of hierarchies of of, of uh, certain axioms and principles vis-a-vis -vis the world that uh, simply doesn't want to honor them. Um, so the question from the public went uh, specifically to Marta Pardavi in uh, both the European and very Hungarian context. Well, I think it's a really, really fascinating question. And if I think of the, I'm really not an expert on this, but if I think of the last couple of years of discussions in the European Union as it concerns citizens, I don't think that this has been clearly explained. So a lot of times, of course, this is tied to digital issues. So it could be about data protection. Um, and it varies from country to country how people are interested in this and how important they see this or they're happy to make the trade-offs. But also um, when it comes to, to um, 
yeah, disinformation and media platforms. I think most people are really not aware. We, in, in my organization, we, as there's a lot of Hungarian laws that we must comply with and we do, not only because of the extra special attention, but because they're usually, you know, make sense. So we have a fire drill, we have labor laws. We also have digital security training um, every now and then for, for our team. And it's amazing how little people are aware of exactly the threats that we carry with us. Um, but, but when it comes to the individual, of course, we need to fortify them, but we really, as individuals, cannot fight this. So there must be regulation, I think, pretty stringent. Um, and, and when it comes to a specific Hungarian point of view, this is really scary. So um, I don't know if you've noticed that uh, members of the Hungarian government and also the head of state has been meeting with Elon Musk lately. I really wonder why. Um, and and what is going on, considering Mr. Musk's and and our security, hard security, and how we're completely vulnerable and susceptible to to his whims or his I don't know grand schemes. So, as a Hungarian citizen, uh, yes, we know that there is surveillance used. There is people in this room who know that all too well. Um, we know that. Um, Private spy companies are being used against Hungarian citizens. We don't know who commissioned them necessarily, but we can have a an, an uneducated guess. I'm thinking of the Black Cube incidents. It has been exposed just a week or two ago that there was another round in 2020. We know that our data um, is, I don't know, the massive data pool that Hungarian citizens' data consists of is probably... In, in hands where otherwise we cannot know for sure that these processes of, of rights protection are adhered to. So why would our data be safer than, than any other thing? So I think there's a lot of things, both in terms of regulation authorities and, and yeah, multinational global companies where as a citizen, I feel that it's not my duty to protect myself necessarily. It's 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 those who the social contract is supposed to. And whether we can trust the Hungarian government on this, I'm not so sure. I'd love to be assured that this conversation is not happening. Uh, just just one one um, addition to that. I think what's what's really important with all those defense investments and creating the defense industry in Europe. It's transparency. I mean, how transparent can you do that? And this is my doubt or my suspicion against the Hungarian government. I understand that there is a need for um, investment in the military and, you know, improvements in the Hungarian army, which is really, you know, in, in, in a rather bad shape. And we can claim that, of course, we need to protect the <coughs> sovereignty and all kinds of things. Uh, and it's also an, an important part of the industrial backbone of a country if you have um, a massive um, defense sector, whether Hungary needs that or not, that's another question. But my problem is here that most of those investments are done totally untransparent. Uh, so they are actually used. Uh, so these investments uh, can even you know, broaden uh, the government's possibility 
to keep everything secret and to keep things untransparent. So this is this is a very good method. Uh, you could say this is top, this is classified, this is top secret. We don't know who is investing in what, who is the real owner, uh, what kind of investment funds are playing a role in all those defense investments. Plus, you can say we're doing everything with the Germans, so it's it all should be great, yeah, because it's Ryan Matal who is uh, in the background of all those big investments. So we are part of a European investment network, um, and you know, you can even ask Ryan Matal; they will not. Uh, they will not inform you as a journalist uh, or as a public citizen about the investments. So that, that's that's a very safe method to keep public money uh, kind of, you know, untransparent. The other obvious question to be asked was the question of both the EU reform and the future EU enlargement, which uh, has been taken up by Marta Pardavi again. Uh, I think it's very clear that from the most recent speeches of the Prime Minister um, that for Hungary, enlargement is only for the Western Balkans. And Prime Minister Orban has said it's a must and doesn't require treaty change. He's willing to even put money into it. So I found it interesting, the, the real contrast between the, the approach to Ukraine and the approach to the Western Balkan countries. Um, there is a, <laughs> one is a no, the other is a completely immediate <coughs> yes. We'll even support it with money. Um, let's, let's, you know, help the Western Balkan countries. It's not a huge amount of money, but he talked about grants and loans to facilitate this process. Um, there was no discussion about any um, you know, Copenhagen criteria type of concerns. Uh, it must happen because of the geopolitical gap, right? If you look at the map, what's in between Hungary and Greece, a big territory up for grabs. So I think this is very clear. It is also very clear that there is a lot of countries and people in this region who the Hungarian Fidesz leadership and the prime minister has been befriending for a very long time. So to think of the number one political refugee in Hungary, the former North Macedonian prime minister, or Milorad Dodik, or, or Alexander Vucic. These are clear allies. There's a, there's a strong network, a strong bond. There's probably a lot of financial <coughs> transactions and back and forth. Um, learning and, sh and sharing about illiberal practices. So I think from a, from this perspective, it would be great if we would have more of these people around the table to, to erode the rule of law standards, wouldn't it? I think this is the thinking. Um, it's not necessarily very favorable to the EU construct. And how we address this <coughs> is a big, big, big question. The other thing that makes me worried is that, again, it's a very institutional process. It's a very political process. And I remember <coughs> as a, uh, you know, as a Hungarian citizen before the 2004 accession, there was not really anything to help me understand what is this about, right? There was a lot of myths and promises and then disappointments. 
There was no people to like strong pushes for for um, cross borders exchanges major there was twinning projects okay but the technical expertise but not nothing big and so how do you build the appetite of of societies to this even if the political leaders think it's a good idea is a big question for me regardless of whether it's only for the western balkans or for a broader um i don't know who's who's going to be really putting a lot of money into this but it would be imperative that we do this and that we don't do this in a siloed way so that already now, and there's a lot of things that can be done already now, this surf project, this serve money, right? The, the, the Citizens Equality Rights and Values Fund. So you cannot do any projects from it that involve people from across the, the external borders. Why not? Like, why can't we? It will be a part of the rule of law reports, a focus on, on accession countries, but can we work together instead of these financial constraints or, or limitations? I think there should be a lot more done. There's probably still time to do it. But I think it is very telling how when it comes to Ukraine, of course, there are so many questions when it comes to the Ukrainian um, enlargement uh, that are real, but, but that the Hungarian government is clearly saying no, no way, nothing. Um, it is it is so clear that um that it yeah <coughs> i don't know if whether this is just for domestic consumption or whether this is meant to to also influence others who might be a little bit more skeptical about this that it, we can't have it anyway because hungary will be a will be a block but i think it is very serious because um because Inherently, this also means as saying a clear no today means basically the same thing as, as um, for me at least, as, as echoing the peace camp narrative. It means that we're not going to help you and somebody else will take you and we're fine with that. And I think this is very stark, something I can't agree with. Said Marta Pardavi, to which Edith Inotai responded. Just a very brief few um, remarks about the nation state and sovereignty. Definitely Hungary will be in the camp of countries which advocate uh, more nation state, more so sovereignty, more subsidiarity. You just look at the national consultation which was launched on, on, uh, on, on Friday. I mean, on the protection of our sovereignty. We are part of the European Union and now we are asking, or the government is asking, 11 questions, um, accusing the, the European Union with things that it's not doing. So obviously, this is for domestic, domestic consumption. But I'm, I'm also wondering sometimes whether it wouldn't be the time for the European Commission or the European Union in any way to react to such national consultations full of lies. I mean, we have a representation here of the European Commission. Have you heard anything of that? I mean, nothing. I mean, really, I mean, they have they have a communication department in Brussels. It's, it's a huge unit. Now you, you should come up with certain answers because, you know, you the um, the, the society is just flooded with, you know, blatant lies about the European Union. Who will clarify all of those things? 
But I think this is going to be a key a key slogan for the Hungarian government in the campaign, in the European campaign, uh, as, as we are just entering it. Sovereignty, because this is a big word. A lot of people don't even know how to interpret it, what that means. But you know, it means that uh, nobody tells us what we're going to do. Fine. But then, you know, why are you in the European Union? And ultimately, this is going to be the question. Uh, and somebody will ask that. Uh, but, you know, getting back to the to the future of Europe, I think Orban's um, strategy is to wait for countries uh, to join him. And, you know, he, he might be well placed for that because look at look at the map in Europe. We lost Poland. That's great. But Slovakia is there. Uh, you will have elections in Austria next year. The FPO is like, you know, top there. Uh, the Slovenian government is shaking. So Jansa can come back anytime. The Czech government is not that stable either. Babish has his eyes on, on a comeback. So, you know, Orban is setting his eyes on the future. Hopefully, uh, you know, he, he is not, he's not successful here as, as he's mostly not successful, by the way, uh, when he is, uh, um, he's hoping for allies winning elections. It was just, you know, basically <laughs> Italy where his, uh, ally Maloney won. And then, you know, look what, what happened? Uh, not, not a big friend, uh, uh, big friendship. Spain, it was gone. Uh, Poland, it's gone. But you know, just keep keep your eyes on the Central European map. It's uh, it's not ruled out that he will have some allies. Um, but uh, there is a little bit of a paradoxical thinking in the Hungarian government when it comes to sovereignty and big European projects because they are very enthusiastic about the coming European armies. I mean, what what is that? I mean, that's really when you give up all your sovereignty, when you are in a common European army. So in a way, uh, you know, sometimes it's just not, it's, it's just not logical what they say. So they, you know, they uh, advocate an army, a common army, common defense, uh, but on the other hand, a very strong nation states. And just a word on the enlargement, obviously Hungary will be very strongly advocating enlargement, Western Balkans. The big dilemma here is Serbia. I mean, what do you do with Serbia? Because an enlargement without Serbia wouldn't make too much of a sense. We have discussed that at a meeting like a year ago with you. Um, uh, but Serbia is a is a problem in itself because it's just not meeting any criteria at the moment. Uh, and the frustration is also growing in uh, many societies in the Western Balkans because of the delay of the whole process. And, you know, just adding Ukraine as a candidate. And, you know, um, I'm also um, dealing a little bit with the Western Balkans. There's a lot of frustration in those countries that they have been working for the accession and now comes another country taking the fast lane. Lastly, there was an interesting exchange between uh, a right-wing activist who also came to the debate and uh, Marta Pardavi on the question whether the European Union, by reinforcing its central power elements in uh, uh, relations to the nation states, is not inducing some elements of uh, political decay. The decay of the institutions here, mm -hmm. the public, the low levels of public trust, the answer to that is not, you know, to move the police or the public media to the European Commission, but rather to 
reinforce the checks and balances at the national level. And ultimately, these checks and balances are at the national level, but they need people and institutions, very elaborate set of complex integrated institutions to work. So I think the problem here is at the national level and the answer is also at the national level. And the EU only comes in when these don't seem to be working well, either because uh, they become evident through corrupt practices or because people simply don't see their their court cases being adjudicated in an impartial and fair manner. And that becomes evident through, through systemic um, breaches. So I think the EU here is, is stepping in to make sure that we have well-working national systems. It's not encroaching, it's not overtaking. And the answer here is not more federalism. I don't know what that would actually mean in this construct but not centralization, but like well-working structures. If Hungary didn't have corrupt practices, um, basically systemic corruption, I don't think we would be even thinking of this discussion. When I talked to colleagues from Lithuania, which I just did last week, somebody working at Transparency International there, and I asked, are you doing anything related to the rule of law? Or you know, do you, do you send in reports um, to the rule of law, reports of the commission? She looked at me like, why would I waste my time? We don't have these issues. I can talk to the ministry. And we do have a working group. And if there is an issue, we can sort that out. And I think that was quite interesting. It's not that they don't have any problems, but they can do deal with them at the national level. And that's a big, big issue in Hungary that there is no such dealing with it at the national level. Mm. I, I have three things. One is uh, let's remember Brexit and not for, you know, bashing Cameron again, who miraculously resurfaced, <laughs> but, um, but just remember the public opinion in Britain. First thing they Googled, you can search Google Trends historical records on the day after Brexit was what is Brexit and what is the European <laughs> Union? So there is a certain level of political narratives that play on the ignorance of the society that decides in elections and referenda about this big question, supposedly big questions, and some, some words are frightening depending on the language and translation. Federalization, I think, is one of them because, you know, federalist countries like United States, uh, Switzerland, or Germany would just praise it. You know, it works. It actually works, but it doesn't mean centralization. And what rings in the ears, I think, I don't know about Hungary, but in Poland, for sure, someone says federalization, well, it's instantly the demon of, you know, uh, superimposing something from the top. But actually, you know, it's counterfactual again, but it's polit method of political communication and narrative rather than, than facts and, and, and real, real problems. Now, when speaking of the reality, I have two other points. One is that basically European Union over the past term uh, has rather come back to decision-making by European Council. So this creation talk that Brussels institution, meaning commission, is all empowering, is actually it diminished its role. The European Council has leveled up in terms of taking decisions and some unprecedented in terms of innovating, reappropriating some of the funds deciding how to help Ukraine, how to solve pandemic, 
Recovery Resilience Fund. These were not EU institutions, in fact. These were nation states deciding in the council um, about innovation that, that then is being administered. And similarly, another democratic institutions with the European Parliament basically has more ambitions on, of course, but more voice and pushes the agenda. And frankly, some countries are, who are speaking against federalization are just, we're just asking for it. Poland, if not, if Poland did not butcher a liberal democracy project, probably it wouldn't put spotlight on Hungary so much. That's a perspective of colleagues from Fidesz, I believe. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think they're right. Uh, so thank, uh, thank, uh, Poland again, especially the, <laughs> the bunch that lost the elections, uh, for, for, uh, making Europe great again. Uh, for, on, um, yeah. And I think I'll stop here. And the last question was asked by Sabolch Pani on the future of the Central European cooperation. And second, whether we will see Warsaw in Budapest, specifically in the context of the recent elections in Poland. Uh, I'm a journalist. Um, I have two intertwined questions. One is, uh, you like, what do you expect uh, from the new Polish government when it comes to the Wyszegrad Group cooperation? Like, is it going to blow up? Is it going to become dormant? Or how is going the, the new government navigate? And the second is, both of you, like, Would you expect any support from the new Polish government towards Hungarian civil society? Will we going to see uh, Polish influence in, in Hungarian public life, as we saw uh, <laughs> during these, the previous uh, eight years that the Hungarian government did have a certain influence over uh, Polish public life? Direct question on Poland. I'm, the government is not even there yet. Uh, so we can only speculate because the policies and the expose hasn't been there. We don't, we don't see the priorities clearly laid out. Uh, but I think it's a valid question. And the nature of this question has greatly changed over time, not just because of the rule of law, European Union, and so on, but specifically because of the war and specifically also because of Finland and Sweden bid for NATO. Mm-hmm. See, I, I mean, after Brexit and after the war, or after the new invasion of Russia on on Ukraine, and after the bid and successful join, uh, you know, Finland joining uh, NATO, and Sweden at some point being allowed in, (laughs) being allowed in, and then then we should um, realize that Poland is looking at its own turf in Europe a little bit differently, and I think everyone does. First of all, in these past years after Brexit, everybody started to look and learn a little bit more in, in terms of thematic uh, groupings rather than only regional. Regional are still important and there will be still importance relevance to Visegrad. There, there are common priorities that have been not fulfilled yet. North-South connectivity, for instance, in all domains. Uh, the support for civil society which remains actually the only function and pillar of the Visegrad Fund to invest in new generations, search for the new hope of the cooperation in Central Europe. This will remain. The larger scale cooperation that involves political priorities that manifested in 2015 by this very outspoken position, actually that triumphed in European policymaking for the first time, being no to relocation scheme, I don't see that likely, but not because of structural reasons from Poland, simply because of the political party leadership. 
V4 functions has been always functioning when political parties were aligned in V4. In the past eight years, we didn't have on EU Council voting so much coherence as before, simply because these were different parties. So, so, so there are different interests and differently, you know, there is less coherence between these countries simply because the political parties are, there are different political parties in, in leadership. And I think the situation is very similar now. So there will be less political alignment. Simply we're talking about prime minister's offices which align primarily with the political families in the European Union, and then secondary with some regional interests. What will remain is technical assistance, or te sorry, technical cooperation. I think V4 ultimately will have its second chance one, once Poland rebuilds its position in the EU institutions, specifically, very pragmatically, in the permanent representation. Because it's simply a pragmatic choice of the volume of diplomats we can put together and at some point, but not immediately, may start to matter a little bit more in European policymaking. Then it's a useful vehicle for any other smaller country around us, simply because we can coordinate, exchange information, build position ahead of council decisions and, and votes. And then Poland is again useful, which it hasn't for the past eight years, because it self-isolated itself from the EU decision-making circles. So that's the potential restoration of V4 cooperation, but it won't be in only V4. Priority will be on the, uh, especially on France and Germany. Italy and Spain wants to build a club of five of, uh, of coordinating the discussion, the big discussion on the, on, on the Europe and Poland probably will be the country to speak. And again, maybe it will bring some coherence, uh, cohesion in, in, in Central Europe because a lot more countries want to be informed and part, take part in shaping this agenda. And I think rightly so, it, it can help Poland, you know, build some cooperation in Central Europe. But we're not the only European country to speak to Central European countries. So, so we're just in a competition, let's say, with others. And uh, finally, I wanted to stress that indeed security and security agenda will be the driving force. And on this line, we are misaligned with Hungary. And we have been misaligned for quite some time. And the war, the, the 2022 has only exposed that. We have different definitions. We have different system of uh, threat perception, at least, if how, how we see uh, the challenges. And that will not bring back V4 because V4, let's remember, hasn't started with EU. EU has allowed it to upkeep itself as a format. It started with withdrawal of the Red Army and NATO accession. If we're not aligned anymore on this, the V4 is just... So in the past eight years, I have, I think, the, made the most new friends from Poland. So if I would look through all my contacts, you know, and there's been quite a lot that, you know, we have been around Europe, but I think very, very strong Polish-Hungarian civil society bonds have been put in place. And, and there is a lot of difference already today and a year ago too, but I think these bonds are going to survive and, and they will somehow change a little bit in terms of the substance, but whatever is happening in Poland is really interesting for Hungarians to, um, just, you know, rule of law issues, funds, judiciary, so society, campaigning, campaign success, mobilization, elections, 
you name it. Uh, but beyond this, I think there is, there is, you know, beyond these sort of immediate issues that are, everybody can sort of recite off the top of their head, there's quite a lot of merit in continuing to, to do this strong realignment. Um, and partly it is because Poland is, if things see, you know, go in the direction you suggest, it's going to be a super big country. And so it, it will have to be in your, anybody's perspective, mm -hmm. right? What is Poland thinking? What are Polish people thinking? What are they going to be favoring? What, what are the issues that they're interested in? And so it will be also a vital interest, not only out of friendship, but out of pragmatism to pay attention. But it will be, I think, a pleasure to do it because there is so much, both in terms of common history, but also common frustrations. Um, but, but Poland, in this sense, is going to be unavoidable. It already is, right? But well, for sure, if Poland is as you said, going to be back and very practical, pragmatically focused, then we really need to, to align. So, um, yeah, it's, it's the, the, it's a completely different approach, right? To what you yeah. suggested. And so I think it will be very important. And I find some remarkable things in Poland, which we usually don't talk about, but Hungarians could learn, um, this risk-taking, entrepreneur and like mm -hmm. this this entrepreneurial spirit far more than in Hungary so this can do sometimes very maybe it's brutal or a little bit dramatic or hysterical reckless reckless <laughs> but certainly this like let's if we let's let's do something rather than let's complain and not do anything and I think this is really interesting so I hope there will be a lot of ties if Poland does well I think that's good for us. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and also visit our website to download the report. The link is in the description to this podcast. And I should also mention that the report, the activities uh, with foresight on the EU values have been co-funded by the European Union from the uh, European Commission Administered Fund, the mechanism to support the civil society that Visegrad Inside Respublica Foundation utilizes to bring in the foresight, forward-looking approach on the upcoming EU policies from Central Europe to the other capitals in the EU and to the EU institutions to create an informed and engaged public space.